Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine lovers, and welcome back to a few days-ish after Beaujolais Nouveau Day. So Beaujolais Nouveau Day is always the third Thursday of November, and this year it was just on the 16th of November. Now, I hope you have grabbed yourself a bottle of Beaujolais Nouveau because in this episode, we're going to look at the tradition, the history, what it is, what it tastes like, how to serve it. And I am talking with Dan, the owner of Wickham's Wines, which if you've been listening this season, you will know are my absolutely fantastic sponsor. And I love the fact that finally you're going to be able to listen to Dan himself and you will realise how incredible he is. So enough of me chatting. Pour yourself that glass and enjoy the episode. Okay, so Dan, are you feeling nervous? You have been an avid listener for how many years now? Since the beginning. I've actually listened. Oh, I've <laughs> actually listened to the, actually, to the very earliest episodes. Yes. Which we don't... <laughs> Which we don't talk about. <laughs> we don't... We, we don't talk about those episodes. No, no, no. Um, we, as someone who has actually listened to those original episodes where I had a co-host... Would you advise anyone to go back that far? No, no never, never work, never work with animals or children. Um. Oof, oh, harsh. Anyway, right. I am so moving on. I we can't carry on here. I am so excited to have you here because, of course, we're such wonderful friends. Are we wonderful friends? I, I was just about to say that. I mean, do you? I, agree? I'll let you say that. Yeah, get on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Okay, that'll do. I feel as though we have a bond of friendship. <laughs> But after working together, knowing each other, it's been so amazing that considering you actually enjoy this podcast that you've sponsored it this year and what's been brilliant as well as I'm mentioning it, but you now actually get to be, you're in the hot seat. So it's really nice because it's me saying, look, these wines that Dan brings in are great, but do people believe me? I don't know. So now the pressure's on you. To prove yourself, you know, these people are listening. So I need to hand this over to you to show your incredible knowledge. Are you going to let us down? I apologise in advance to all of the listeners. <laughs> there is a there is a great <laughs> expectation from the wonderful guests that you've had on in the past. And now they're going to be very kind. to me. No, I am so excited because, as you know, many people don't realise that when Dan and I have any normal conversation the normal conversation, which might, for any other person, take five minutes, takes us an hour, doesn't it? I have it? to put time in my diary to phone you, Nina. So I, <laughs> so I have to block out two hours. I can't just have it. We can't just be a quick phone call. It's like, right, I need to, I need exactly. to speak to you, Nina. Right, yeah, Friday afternoon, I've got two hours free. <laughs> Finally, let's make the phone call. Honestly. Right. Okay. I'm sure people are like, okay, we get it. We get it. You two talk a lot. Well, okay. But we're going to talk about wine now. So I actually don't 
know this answer. So I'm intrigued as well. I want you to explain how you even got into the wine industry. I mean, did you grow up drinking some wine? Yeah, in my bottle. Um, so from a very young oh, age. beautiful baby, baby bottle. bottle. Yeah, mm, yeah. Love um, it. Started mm -hmm. with that. Um, actually, I have a, I'm going to digress very, very briefly. I do have a funny story about I'm that. not surprised. We're talking about Beaujolais today, um, although we'll probably come on to that a little bit later. And one of the producers that we work with, Dominic, he did actually tell me, so genuinely, he used to be the president of Anta Beaujolais, very, very influential man in Beaujolais, 72 years old now. When he was a child, he actually was given wine and water at school at lunchtime for his drink until it was banned in France in 1956. So he would be given more gone with water. Well, first of all, there's a part of me like, oh my God, wow. But then also I'm like, they watered down the wine, right? It just seems... <laughs> I love the fact that yeah, most people are going, oh my God, they were giving children alcohol. And you're going, they weren't giving them the full strength alcohol. Like, like what? Poor it just children. seems a waste. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only I lived in the 1950s. Okay, well, obviously you didn't, jokes aside, you sadly were not even given any watered-down more. Sadly not, no. <laughs> no so, so, it's not, so actually I started off in catering, so that was where it all started. So I used to be a chef a long, long time ago, and my mother and I had an outside catering company where we do weddings and christenings and all that sort of thing. And we did some uh, some sort of society weddings, if you like, in marquees with some, you know, some, some interesting people. And there was one particular wedding that we catered, and all of the wines for the wedding came from a very well-known wine merchant in England, the oldest wine merchant in England. And at the end of which is? is Berry that, Brothers and Rudd. Is that Berry Bros? Yeah. Okay, good. I, good. It already came out of my mouth, but I was like, oh God, am I supposed to know? Yeah, good. I proved yes, it. Well done. And so at the end of the wedding, <laughs> sort of say thank you very much for the for job well done. We were given a case of champagne. And it was Berry Brothers' own champagne produced by Mai. And we took that home, thought nothing much of it, really. Case of champagne, nice, popped a couple in the fridge open one and it was that taste that I got it was this sort of incredible linear clean green crunchy apple fruit flavor that I'd never tasted in anything else before and I was like wow this is phenomenal I need to know more about this and that's where it started okay. that's where the sort of interest that's the, yeah, wow, that's, that's the interest that sort of piqued my interest that's the or the, the moment that piqued my interest and I was like I need to learn more about this and so my journey began I love that. And then, of course, that's taken you to setting up Wickham's Wine. Now, I genuinely, it's, it's, it's brilliant because from knowing you for long enough, I actually get to slowly work my way through all your wines, <laughs> which is brilliant. It's amazing because there's no duds. It's so good that every time I taste a bottle, I'm always excited. And I think that's because of your passion and you're importing so many of these wines yourself. If somebody comes to your site or goes online anyway and they're like, I want to buy wine. You don't have a wine merchant. You don't have somebody saying, hey, what's your flavor profile? So I'm just, you know, for somebody who wants to buy wine, considering you've put all the effort in in putting those wines online, effectively creating a list, what should somebody be doing to try and help them pick a right bottle? I just I'm wondering, you know, you're on the other side. Does that help you? I think, yeah. So I think, I think, I think that's that's down to us to sort of how we structure the site, the information we put on there, how easy we find, you know, for you to find wines that are similar to link through, you know. So whether that be wines by the same producer, wines by the same, you know, that are made from the same grape or from the same region, or whether it's wines that are a similar profile. So that's partly us making sure that the navigation of the site works really well. And then I think also, so the the good thing about internet 
is that it's convenient so you can sit at home you can flick through our list you can find ones that you like you can add them to your basket but then equally what we try and do is make sure that you're doing that in with as little risk as possible so we do the 100 percent satisfaction guarantee if you're not happy you can always send back the wine we'll replace it we'll refund it um you know we're confident i'm confident that the wines that we've got are good but if there's any reason why people don't like it well then just tell us and we'll we'll give you another bottle so you have that confidence to sort of take that leap because yeah if you go into a traditional wine merchants then there's someone there that you can chat to and you can tell them oh i like x y and z and they'll find something that's similar whereas obviously we don't have that you can phone us up you can chat to the lovely people on the end of the phone and they can give you some advice you have real people we have real people answering the telephone not even robots it's like proper real people sitting waiting just waiting to speak to customers i'm actually genuinely impressed i mean i mean that like nobody has real people anymore wow okay question could somebody be fortunate enough to get you on the end of the phone I'm, I'm no. shaking my head now. And I know this is the radio, so shaking your head doesn't work. Uh, very, very rarely. I'm not, I, no. Because I'm generally, as you know, sort of traveling, tasting, meeting people. No, you're not. Um, you're normally talking to me. Or, or talking to you. This is the problem. If you try to get through to me, I will be engaged because I will be talking to you, Nina, and you'll be waiting for hours for me to hang up. <laughs> so so no, okay. you, normally, you normally talk to the lovely Tracy or Laura who will then help you out. I love that. Okay, no, do you know what? That's actually, I love the fact, and I forgot that you do actually give 100% confidence guarantee, and that is actually important. So, okay. Now, let's go to Beaujolais. This is what this episode is about. So, obviously, you had your wow moment with a champagne, but Beaujolais, I know, has a very, very special place in your heart. So, why? So, just following on from the story. So, that first wine that I tried was from Berry Brothers and Rudd. Berry Brothers and Rudd, um, if you start to, you know, that's where my, if you like, my education, my excitement started. And so I was like, right, I need to learn more about this. I need to find more. And so the first place I went was, of course, Berry Brothers and Rudd. And back then, you know, I don't even think there was a website. I don't, I don't, this is probably pre-internet, you know, and I used to, used to go into the shop in St. James, you know, where they had this great big ledger with everything written in and all the wines used to be stored in the cellars underneath St. James. And you'd have your own reserve and you could go down and look at your own reserve. It's far less romantic now. They're all in a warehouse in Basingstoke. But they're very much focused on those traditional regions, Bordeaux, Burgundy, and that's what a lot of their conversation at that time, certainly, may have moved on now, but that you know, would be about those very serious places. I've bought wines in Bordeaux and in Burgundy. And you go to Burgundy and you go to a producer in Burgundy and they'll take you into their cellar or their tasting room and they'll taste their range of wines with you. So brilliant, right, that one. I love that one. Can I buy this wine? <laughs> And you can't, you know, it's so hard. They're so serious. They're so, you know, they're so proper. And they've got very little production. And they, you know, and, and they, they've got these very long relationships that go back probably hundreds of years in some instances. It's really hard to buy. Go to Beaujolais. The thing I love about Beaujolais is it's much more like me. It's much more lighthearted. It's much more easygoing. You know, uh -huh. there's a charm to it. You know, the winemakers in Beaujolais, they welcome you with open arms. You know, they want you to drink their wines. They want you to buy their wines. They want you to enjoy their wines. It's much more fun. It's much less serious. It's much more easygoing. And it suits me, I think. 
I love that. I love that. Now, okay, so this specific episode, because we've just gone past Beaujolais Nouveau Day. Yay! <laughs> yeah, you need to make noise. Okay, I need to give you some education. I know I can see you. Others can't see you. So, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. He's dancing around in front of the camera, everyone, but he doesn't really go. Okay, stop dancing. You have to make noise to make it apparent. Okay. Anyway, so we've just gone past Beaujolais Nouveau Day. I have a bottle of no- a Nouveau. There are some much more serious wines in Beaujolais, but Nouveau is the funnest, is the most exciting, easiest, you know, lively wine of them all. So I'm going to hand over to you to explain to people what is Beaujolais Nouveau and what is Beaujolais Nouveau Day? You know, when was it? Yeah, so starting with Nouveau Wines. So Nouveau Wines essentially your van de primeur which means the first wine and it's not just Beaujolais they make wines of this style in other places as well and it's about the speed from the harvest vinification to bottle and out to the customer so these wines were all picked this year so the harvest happened this year in September and then it's roughly six weeks from those wines being picked going into fermentation being bottled and out to the customer. So six weeks, really, really quick. So it's very light, it's very fresh, it's very fruity. And, you know, you also get a similar style of wine made in Bodolino Novello, which is Italian, which they do this very fast wine in a very similar way. Even in England, actually, we have a few producers. So Sharpham are making their new release wine, which is the same principle, where it's very fast. It's not unique to Beaujolais, but Beaujolais is probably the best known. And it goes back, actually, so... There was a festival, St. Martin's Day Festival, which happens on the 11th of November, so a historic, you know, sort of Saints Day. And that was a celebration of the harvest. And so there was always be, so winemakers all over the world, great, you know, vineyards all over the world, would make a wine to drink on St. Martin's Festival to celebrate the end of the harvest. And then it was in 1956, so relatively recently, where actually Beaujolais Nouveau started to become a thing. So prior to that, you know, Beaujolais Nouveau wasn't wasn't you know wasn't really anything other than just this early wine that people would drink on St Martin's Day that was made by the winemakers and shared with all the friends in the village. And then this chap, George de Boeuf, who you've probably heard of. Well, he is the it's the easiest producer to find <laughs> around in this moment. But yes. So yes, yeah, so George de Boeuf, often referred to as the Pope of Beaujolais. <laughs> yeah. In 1956 he spotted this opportunity to take this wine that they were drinking that they were making on St Martin's Day and to actually market it and to market it as this special thing called Beaujolais Nouveau. So he went around the uh, the bistros of Lyon and he started to sell his Beaujolais Nouveau. So thanks to George de Boeuf, um, that's where Beaujolais Nouveau came about. And at this point, you know, it came out some point in November around St. Martin's Day Festival 11th, but there was no strict rules about it. Following on from that, two people in the 70s. So Joseph Berkman, who you may you may be aware of, Berkman, Berkman Wines. Was that from the Berkman Wine? I was going to say, from the, the wine, wine merchants. Wine. So James, oh, okay. And he was also a columnist in the Sunday Times. And he sat down in Paris to have a dinner with Clement Freud, who was a columnist for The Sun and an MP and used to be on the radio and so on and so forth. And in 1970, they sat down. And they saw this hullabaloo about this new wine because they would, you know, by this point, it sort of spread through Lyon and now it had moved to Paris and they'd race to get the wines from Beaujolais to Paris and get them into the restaurants, the finest restaurants in Paris, where they would then serve them in November as this new wine. 
And so Clement Freud and Joseph Berkman basically had a private challenge amongst themselves to get this wine back to England in the fastest possible time. And so over the next couple of years, they would race, the two of them, just the two of them would race from Paris. They'd collect their Nouveau wine and they'd race back to London and they'd see who could get back first. So on the Sunday Times, there's a writer called Alan Hall. So he was a colleague of Joseph Berkman. And then in 1973, Alan basically threw down the gauntlet to all of his readers to bring back the Beaujolais. And it was this challenge to get the Beaujolais from Beaujolais from, from the Vaudreuil vineyards back to his desk at the Times in London. And the first person to get the Nouveau wine back to him would win a case of champagne. I have not heard of this at all. This is not the story I thought you were going to tell. This is impressive. Okay. <laughs> And well, yeah, like so this it. is and this is where the whole sort of excitement around Beaujolais Nouveau and the race, if you've heard of the Beaujolais Run or the Beaujolais Race, you know, people racing back in cars and trains and jet planes and everything else to get the Beaujolais back. This is where it all came from, from this challenge set by by Alan Hall in 1973. Then over the 70s, 80s, 90s, it became more and more popular. And in 1985, the French government then actually created the law which sets Beaujolais Nouveau Day as the third Thursday in November. So now you're not allowed to buy Beaujolais Nouveau before one minute past midnight on the third Thursday in November. And that's a French law. When we collect our Beaujolais Nouveau wine, we have to sign a waiver to say, you know, we're not going to do that. We're not going to sell it before then. I actually have, um, you can't see me off camera at the moment, but there is a member of the gendarmerie just stood here in case I open a bottle, you know, early. <laughs> and he, yeah, he will then arrest me. Oh, oh no, I thought that they cut your head off. Oh, yeah, the guillotine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they cut, they cut your head off, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so, so 1985, they made the rule that was you know, Beaujolais Nouveau Day was set as the third Thursday in November, and that's where it, it still is now. And it reached its peak, it reached its zenith in uh, 1992, at which point 50% of the production of Beaujolais, of the whole region, was actually given over to Beaujolais Nouveau. No, really? 50% of the entire region by 1992 was Beaujolais Nouveau. Now. Oh, my gosh. What is it now? (laughs) Oh, sorry. You're getting ahead of yourself. Uh Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Okay. I'll keep quiet. Carry on, Dan. (laughs) The problem that that created, so the the problem that having 50% of your production created was one of quality then, quantity versus quality. Listeners of a certain age, you know, who have these memories of Beaujolais breakfast in the 1980s, of the race happening, of parties going on, you know, may have somewhere in their mind the fact that, you know, actually it was a bit naff. Because sort of as the quantity increased and the quality decreased, it did become a bit naff. And it sort of fell out of favour a little bit. And actually, it's quite, it's quite sad because in the noughties, there were a series of suicides in and around the region of Beaujolais because people had invested so much in Nouveau because it was this trend that was growing and growing and growing. And then the bottom sort of fell out of it as the quality reduced and then people lost everything. Yeah, yeah, oh, winemakers no. lost everything, some of them. This is so sad. It is, yeah. God, you, all right. Way to bring us all down, Dan. This is supposed to be a fun <laughs> podcast. All right. Hopefully you can bring it back up. You know, the bottom fell out of it. It, it, it was, you know, it was, it was a bit naff. It was a bit rubbish. People stopped buying it. But what that did then was actually allow people to focus a little bit more on the other things that Beaujolais is known, known about, which we'll come on to later, which is the cruise, you know, the serious wines. 
But equally, probably in the last 10 years, there's been a real sort of focus back onto quality, both for the crews, but also for Nouveau. And what we've seen is this series of successively good vintages that have happened sort of 18, 20, 22 have all been very good, very warm, very ripe years, and it's produced this this incredible quality. And so the quality of Nouveau since about 2010 has been increasing again. And also, I think people have started to rediscover it. You know, those people that drank it in the 80s and 90s and then went off it a little bit are, are coming back to it, going, oh, this is better than I remembered. And then you've got a whole new generation <laughs> coming through who've never heard of it before, who are discovering it and going... Oh, yeah, we'll have some of this, you know, and it's a great opportunity to celebrate the harvest. It's the first chance we get to taste this harvest. You know, it's our first chance to taste what 2023 will be like as a year. Um, and so it creates this real moment, you know, this of where we can go, right, yeah, let's let's taste 2023. What's it like? Oh yeah, this is this is gonna <laughs> be a good year. <laughs> I have got as you have, I believe, as well. We So this is Domaine Belle Avenir. So this is your the wine that's available on your site, which also the name of this wine is Cecile Danelli. Yeah? Is that the name of the wine? Cecile Dardanelli. Yeah. So fourth generation winemaker. So she's based in the village of Chapel Luginchy, which is... If I explain very quickly the geography of Beaujolais, so the crews all yes. tend to be in the north. Villages sort of tend to be in the middle, so Beaujolais Village, and then AOC Beaujolais tends to be in the south. So it sort of goes from being quite hilly in the north to being quite flat river plains in the south. And Chapelaginchy sits sort of just between where the crews and the villages sort of cross over. So she's very close to uh, Juliana as the crew is the closest okay the closest crew. okay and everyone we will talk in far more detail about what juliana and the other crews give to your wine so wait for part two but actually that's quite nice because when you get beaujolais nouveau it could just be from the typical south of beaujolais somewhere in beaujolais couldn't it this happens to be beaujolais village so we are in better soil territory slight better terroir so you're mm. going to get a bit more concentration as well even though this is a really fun fruity style you know we're not we are not after anything complex here are we? and it's you can make you know they can make beaujolais nouveau anywhere in within the appellation um obviously here as you mentioned so it is labeled on the bottle village because it is aoc beaujolais village albeit a nouveau version so yeah when you're buying if you go into a shop if you look you can see you know if it just says beaujolais then that's just aoc beaujolais which is the very broad area if it says beaujolais village then it's coming from this slightly better so are this slightly better ground so it will be you know potentially a little bit more expensive but in my opinion worth worth paying the extra price for how much is this a bottle? Uh, so £12.60 on a mix six deal. And everyone should be doing mix six, let's be honest. Obviously, drink responsibly, but what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> and there's probably some benefits to the environment, aren't there, in doing less shipping and stuff like I that? I love how you're saying that as a way to encourage people to buy six bottles, but actually that is genuinely true. Yes, uh, it, it, it is. is. It is you're gonna, you are going to drink six wines in your lifetime, so just buy the six... <laughs> At one point. Right, okay, let's get back to this wine. For me, 
it's like taking a whole load of strawberries that have just got like a punnet of strawberries that have been squished up though you know when you've like put way too much stuff in your picnic bag or whatever and it's all just gone everywhere it's got that real huge bouquet smell of that but also some kind of cassisi blackcurrant which i was quite surprised about because yeah, typically yeah tell me i was gonna say i think there's a depth there's a depth to it that you maybe don't expect you know if you remember beaujolais nouveau from the from the old days and you haven't had it for a while i think your memory of it is much lighter than it actually is now because you get this ripeness, you get this concentration. So yeah, you get those wild strawberries, you know, you get those really fun red fruits at the front, but then there is that concentration and depth, which is, you know, black currants, blackberries, maybe somewhere in there. Yeah, no, do you know what? It's bright, it's smooth, it's really lively. It's not complex, but what I really like as well, Beaujolais Nouveau tends to have like no tannins it's so smooth and chill it down it's great but the, even this wine has a tickle it has a tickle it has a tickle of tannin <laughs> no but you know it's like it's this it's, it's a suggestion it's like i'm going on the website later to update my tasting note i'm gonna put <laughs> this just has a little tickle of tannin <laughs> it's, it's a tickle of tannin you know it's like you know when you have a um, apricot or a peach and that slight furriness that's just but it's lovely and ripe so it's just it's a tickle. It's a tickle of tannin. That's, that, that's what you're left with, right? <laughs> so I like it. Like, it isn't complicated, but this is a adult Ribena <laughs> with style and finesse. That is what this is. <laughs> yeah, I think with any of the Nouveau wines, they are about fun. You know, I, we, we don't want to intellectualize it too much. We don't want to be too, you know, with our tasting note. And it's, I love, so I mentioned earlier Sharpham New Release, which is like the English um, new, Nouveau version. And Duncan, who's the winemaker there, you know, when I asked him, so it's 25 years they've been making New Release now. And, um, and I asked Duncan, you know, about the whole process of how they find it. And he said, basically, he said, after the harvest, we have all of the grapes in the vats fermenting. He said, and then a couple of weeks before we need to bottle i go around and i taste every tank and when i find the tank and i think i could drink a bucket of that that's the one that i'm bottling as new release i love it it makes sense do you know what it's like this wine and the good versions of beaujolais Nouveau. it's just grape juice hd that's what it is <laughs> you know because when you're in a winery and everything's fermenting and getting towards the end that absolute intense smell of just primary fruits this is what you have here. This is a young wine. Yeah. And we should talk about how it's made as well, because, well, actually, before we talk about how it's made, which helps with the idea of no tannins or tickler tannins, <laughs> but actually, let's talk about the grape for a second, because in terms of making red Beaujolais, it's one grape variety, Gamay. So what is Gamay? What do you, how would you describe it to people? To give it its full name. I mean, I know we're saying we're being fun and we're being simple and we're not being... Ugh. Yeah, we're going to be a bit pretentious now being for proper. a moment. We're going to be pretentious. Okay. It's actually called uh, Gamay Noir à Jublon. I thought you were going to say Gamay Noir. I was like, I was very comfortable with the fact that officially it should be Gamay Noir. What the hell? Can you say this slowly? <laughs> what? Yeah, so Gamay Noir à Jublon is its full title. And I'll say the Blanc part. Oh, with, with white juice? Yes. In, yeah. Inside? And it is a great variety. So it's got... Pinot Noir on one side and Gouet Blanc on the other side. So everyone, everyone will know Pinot Noir, you know, very, very well-known grape. Gouet Blanc, incredibly promiscuous, doesn't really grow very much anymore, but has produced so many children. Do you know another famous grape whose parents are Pinot Noir and Gouet Blanc? 
Isn't it Chardonnay? It is Chardonnay. Yes. So the other grape that you're allowed to grow in Beaujolais, Chardonnay, is also made from the same two parents, which I think is pretty crazy. The fact that, you know, on one side you've got a red grape and on the other side you've got a white grape, but yet the parents are the same. But then that just goes to show, isn't it, when you have these natural crossings that have happened over time, it's weird. I always say as well, you know, when you look at mutations of Pinot Noir, that's how we got Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc and all these other things. And you're just like, how? But it's really, it's quite exciting actually to kind of go back in history just a little bit and see what's happened. See, everybody I told you, (laughs) he bloody well knows stuff. He's rather interesting, honestly. (laughs) Right. So yes, Gamay. Oh, no, sorry. Gamay, Gamay Noir, yes, 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 yes. Carry on. <laughs> so, 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 Blanc. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, spot on. Yeah. So discovered around about 1380, 1385, sometime around there. No one's quite sure. It just popped up in some vineyards in Burgundy. And actually it comes, so it was, they reckon it was found in the village of saint aubin sur gamay which is in Burgundy. And at the time, Philip the Bold, the Duke of Burgundy, was putting a lot of effort into diplomacy using wine. He was sending his very good quality red Pinot Noir wines all around Europe to build up, you know, his his sort of diplomacy, his position in the continent. And he discovered his farmers were actually really struggling. And his, his farmers were struggling because Pinot Noir is an absolute rotter. Like it is a real difficult grape to grow. I think you've said it before. It's like the girl in the nursery rhyme. When she's good, she's very, very good. And when she's bad, she's rotten. You know, she it is a real pig to work with. And this yeah. new this new variety, this this gamay popped up in these vineyards in Burgundy. And it was a dream. You know, it was so easy to work with. It produced high yields. It didn't, it wasn't fickle. You know, it just got on with the job and did it. And so the winemakers of Burgundy all started to sneak gamay into their vineyards because it was a hell of a lot easier than making Pinot Noir. But Philip the Bald, the Duke of Burgundy, discovered this and got very, very upset and laid down a decree in 19... 1935, in 1995, saying you must rip up all the disloyal gamay. He said it must all go. So he said that everything got ripped up. He didn't care about what happened in Beaujolais because Beaujolais to him, he was the Duke of Burgundy. He wasn't the Duke of Beaujolais. You know, it was a backwater. They were only good for making table wines. And so gamay found its sort of natural home in Beaujolais. And one of the wonderful things about that was the fact that most of Beaujolais sits on granite and granite and Gamay are like perfect bedfellows. It just helps Gamay. First, it tames its its vigour a little bit, you know, so it stops it being quite so vigorous and overproducing. But it also, that when it takes up, you know, some of those, the, the sense of that place of the granite, it just gives it more, it gives it more, more depth, more body, more structure. Um, and so it found the perfect place in Beaujolais. And so that's why, you know, sort of throughout Beaujolais, you have pretty much all the vineyards are planted with Gamay. There's two grapes that are allowed. We mentioned Chardonnay earlier. So Gamay for red, Chardonnay for white, but only about 2% of the overall vineyard area of Beaujolais is planted to Chardonnay. The rest of it is Gamay. Which is really bloody good. I know this episode, we're going to focus on Gamay, but actually Beaujolais Blanc is a 
best kept secret of the wine industry. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Such good value. It's amazing, oh. amazing value. If you think about, again, about the geography, I talked a little bit earlier about the geography of Beaujolais. You know, Beaujolais is just very slightly south of Burgundy. You know, actually, in the northern parts of Beaujolais, you can grow grapes under Burgundy classifications because it's you know because there is this sort of crossover. So if you think about that, if you buy wine that's labelled Beaujolais Blanc, which is 100% Chardonnay, you could buy Macon um, Chardonnay from only a few miles away, possibly even the same villages in some instances, but you'll pay a lot more because it says Burgundy on the label. Yeah, I mean, well, so Macon is right. Well, obviously, Burgundy is north of Beaujolais, just in case anyone hasn't realised. Macon is the last part of Burgundy. And actually, when you look at Macon, it's not just north of Beaujolais. It even wraps around that first section, goes even to the east. It re- it's like intertwined, it is. isn't it? It's like in, you Absolutely. Know, yeah. mm-hmm. And so, you, yeah, yeah. And so you, can, you can find some amazing value if you're happy to have Beaujolais on the label, which I always am, and everyone should be. <laughs> they should. But anyway, Chardonnay... You can have another episode another day. Back to Gamay. I love it. So, yes. And actually, you've mentioned the granite soils. You've mentioned, we've mentioned Gamay. When I was learning about this region, I remembered the three Gs. So when I was learning my uh, WSETs, you had Gamay, you had granite, and you had goblet. And goblet being one of the other words for bush vines. And so that always really helped me, the three Gs. And that's something as well that this region is is famous for. Obviously, things change as well now. But I don't know in terms of the listenership, sort of how familiar people are with vineyards. But when people think of a vineyard, a lot of people that I speak to think of a field in England, basically, bounded by a fence or a hedge with vines growing in it on trellises, you know, where you've probably got two, two rows growing on wires slightly up a hill. And everything in that field will be owned by the farmer, the winemaker, whoever. And that is what people, I, a lot of people that I speak to have in their head as being a vineyard. We're not talking that here. You know, Beaujolais is, it doesn't look like that at all. A bit like Burgundy. What you have are these sort of just swathes of vines. They're goblet trained, so they're low. They look a bit like, if there was no leaves on them, they'd look a little bit like a goblet in shape. There's no fences. There's no hedgerows. And what you have is a very small plot that belongs to one winemaker. And then a little sort of dirt path, and then another plot the same size. And we're talking about, you know, maybe 100 metres by 100 metres as each plot. And that, uh, and that belongs to another winemaker. And then another plot next to it. And you'll have, you know, maybe 100 plots in one area. And each one of those 100 plots, three of those might be owned by one maker, one winemaker. And they won't be next to each other. You know, there'll be one in one corner, one in another corner, one somewhere else. You know, there'll be, there's no signs to tell you who owns any of these. They just know from hundreds of years <laughs> of, of owning them, of knowledge. That's crazy, yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go and you see it, like, first of all, you see that. And you think, oh, how do people know which is there? How do they know which? their vines it's, it's but they do and then you look yeah. at these goblets and go how on earth do they pick the vines i mean they're so they must be midgets otherwise they'll all have bad backs because they are so low to the ground and then you go to you know if we if we'll talk a bit more about this later on but you go to some of the crew vineyards and they're on these you know incredibly steep slopes you know 30 degree inclines or 30 percent inclines you know which are, and yeah oh my god this is 
this is hard backbreaking work but yeah it grew, but that's that's how they grow the gamut in these in these sort of low yeah in these low goblet but if i'm correct in some of the other parts of Beaujolais, like in the further south, where they're not in the villages, actually now they are turning to doing trellising and being a little bit more modern, yeah, aren't if, they? Of course. Yeah. If you go to AOC Beaujolais, which is the lowest classification in the system, then yes, there will be mechanisation. There will be, you know, much more efficient vineyard systems. But, but then equally, that's when you get much more of the kind of the clay, mild soils. You don't get that wonderful granite and even the schist. So the three Gs, three the best Gs. wines, it is, it's <laughs> Gamay, Granite, Goblet. Yeah, anyway, so that, it worked for me. Okay, so Gamay, it's a, you know, it's got those lovely red fruits. It does, it is a light wine. It doesn't have so many tannins in general. But specifically going back to Beaujolais Nouveau, they have a winemaking technique called carbonic maceration, don't they? And that is what really helps the wine become super smooth, super fruity. So I feel like you're going to be the man that's going to explain this to us. <laughs> so, yeah. So if you go into a winery in Beaujolais, first thing you'll notice is concrete tanks. So concrete tanks are the typical way of making wine in Beaujolais. So they're big. Ah, so not really, not stainless steel. Not really, no. So what you see traditionally are concrete tanks, big square concrete tanks. And, you know, in harvest they'll come and everything will go into the concrete tank. Whole bunches, including stems, everything will go in. And what happens is the, the first lot, you know, sort of falls into the bottom. And as more of the grapes fall on top of those, the weight of that starts to crush the grapes at the bottom. So that is a traditional yeast-based fermentation that starts to happen just naturally, just from the weight of everything that's, you know, the whole weight of everything pressing down on those grapes that first went in. As they start to ferment, they release CO2. And the CO2 rises up the tank and fills the tank. And as it fills the tank and basically removes all the oxygen, you then end up with an anaerobic process happening in the bunches at the top. So you increase the amount of lactic acid that goes into the top of the, the grapes. And what they then start to do is they actually start to ferment from the inside of the grape out so they then start to burst and release their juice in that way they start to but in doing so and this is the carbonic or the semi-carbonic maceration in doing that what you end up is with much brighter fruit flavors and much lower tannins so you still get the color from the skins you still get the flavors but you don't get the the tannins so it makes for this much lighter much more approachable style of wine and it can in some instances and it, you know partly depends on how you're doing it. you can this is where also things like the sort of bubblegum notes that you get can come from if you if you're familiar with that from Beaujolais or sometimes you pick up bananas which you know some people think is a is a negative thing if you get the banana flavor but again that's because of the carbonic maceration that you're getting those but it's a really cool fermentation process it's not just it's famous in this region even more famous for the Nouveau but it is used around the world I mean even young Riocas use this technique it's a really cool type of fermentation process carbonic maceration it's quite cool to understand it we've actually got one we've actually got a pinotage from South Africa that's made ah, with okay, carbonic yeah. maceration you know so you can use it for anything and again you know because pinotage can be incredibly tannic you know as a as a wine and actually what's been produced in that instance is a wine that's really nice chilled a red 
Pinotage that's really nice. And you mentioned about sort of Hove and Rioja. Again, you know, if you're using carbonic maceration there, these are wines that actually then work quite nicely chilled because you don't have the tannin in them. And so if you have them, I wouldn't, you know, not, not very, very chilled, but if you were to have them at, say, you know, 10, 11 degrees, something like that, then you end up with a really, you know, nice wine to drink on a slightly warmer day, a little bit cooler. Delicious. So would you say that this Beaujolais Nouveau is probably good around the 10, 11 degrees if somebody wants to have a really fresh, fruity style? Yeah, I would normally chill Beaujolais Nouveau very, very slightly. You know, maybe pop it in the fridge for 30 minutes before you open it just to, to give it a little bit of a chill. And I think it's better for that. It's very refreshing. And Would you ever age because i mean it doesn't have tannins tannins is one of the natural preservatives in wine that is what helps a wine age as well so you know my answer is would always be buy it drink it done but i mean you are a merchant you will have got other bottles lying around probably from previous years that you may have been able to try so yeah, well positive yeah holding so, back so a couple of weeks ago, I was doing an event, a consumer event. Yeah. I was presenting wines to the general public pre-Beaujolais Nouveau Day. And so I wanted to make a pitch for people to buy Beaujolais Nouveau. So I took a few bottles of last year's Beaujolais Nouveau with me just, oh, to, use as a, yeah, just to use as a prop, basically. Prop. Yeah, just to go, <laughs> oh, look, isn't this nice? Would you like this year's? It's very exciting. And, you know, I sold a dozen bottles because people actually enjoyed it because it's still drinking perfectly okay. well. I wouldn't want to keep it a long time, but certainly, <laughs> you know, 12 to 18 months, it's, it's going to be drinkable. You know, they, I, think, yeah. I think in the 90s, when the quality was low, you know, you wouldn't have wanted to keep it past January. It wasn't improving. Whereas now, because there is more of a focus on quality, actually, and there is a tickle of tannin, um, <laughs> 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 then you can you can keep it and it's quite i always find it quite an interesting thing to to compare so we're doing a tasting with our customers for Beaujolais Nouveau Day in which we've actually sent them a bottle of last year's Nouveau to taste alongside this oh, year's Nouveau so they can yeah so they can see how it develops and it'll of course it'll depend on the year it'll depend on the what the resulting wine is as to how long it will keep as it always does i love that and what would you pair this wine with like for me again I love a bit of piggies in a blanket with Beaujolais Nouveau. <laughs> Why, is well, that the funny? Is Why is that funny? Piggies, piggies, piggies in a blanket. Piggies in a blanket. Love it. Oh. It's, I suppose it's almost Christmas, isn't it? You know, I hadn't even thought about pigs in blanket. Um, it's it's much too early to consider what I'm going to be eating for Christmas. Day. No, it is not. <laughs> no, it is not. So, Katie, my wife, loves cheese wrapped in bacon on Christmas Day. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Could work. Mm, yeah, I think no. I prefer. But this this is a wine I think that goes really well with gammon. It goes well with ham. It goes well with pork. I don't know. And again, like well, so the, yeah. the classic is always cocovan. Cocovan is the is the classic combination to have with Beaujolais Nouveau, and then pears poached in Beaujolais Nouveau is the dessert to have. So if you were in the region, okay, yeah, for Beaujolais Nouveau or around Beaujolais Nouveau, you're gonna be you're gonna be served pears poached in Beaujolais Nouveau at some point. Love that. That is what they always do. Cold cuts on Boxing Day is another really good pairing with it. And that's, so if, yes. 
Well, I was just going to say Thanksgiving in America, we don't do Thanksgiving, but for those people who do do Thanksgiving or, you know, again, with all the meats and all the trimmings and all that kind of stuff, and just the same way what we might do as well with Boxing Day, all those kind of those meats and stuff, I think work very nicely. Yeah. So yeah, if you've just got lots of leftovers on Boxing Day and you're having a bit of a cold turkey, a bit of cold ham, you know, a few bits of, you know, leftover... Higgies in a blanket! Higgies <laughs> <laughs> Then yeah, that would be a, it'd be a good time to to crack open a Beaujolais Nouveau. Ugh, love it. Equally, I think any because it's a fun wine. You know, you you don't have to be too serious with it. You don't have to think too hard about it. You know, you just crack open a bottle, have it on the sofa whilst listening to this podcast. I think that's a fabulous idea. Now, I think that you have definitely inspired a few people to probably be interested in this region as a whole. You have been to Beaujolais how many times? A few. <laughs> Yeah, a few times. Yeah. <laughs> Regularly. So if somebody wanted to go and visit, because, you know, we talk about, yes, okay, Burgundy is in the north, but Lyon is just to the south. Isn't Lyon, and again, I've never been, they are, this is a place amazing for food, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. It's so well known for the food that you get to the bistros of Lyon. This is, and as I said earlier, like in 1956, this is where Georges de Boeuf started with the Beaujolais Nouveau. You know, to the to the bistros of Lyon, and so you can go there. You could, you know, you would have your Beaujolais Nouveau with the with the food of the region, and like the whole of France. I mean, the food wherever you go in France, I think is is wonderful. You know, and it's always it's always an event, isn't it? I know, I know. I just said you could just sit on the sofa and open a bottle of it. <laughs> In France, no one would ever do that. No. Like no one ever just opens a bottle of wine on the sofa. There's always food to go with it, even if that's just a little bit of saucisson, you know, and some cheese. Oh, yum. Yeah. There's always food, you know, there's always nibbles to go with the wine. But yes, flying into Lyon is, is the way to go. That's the way yeah, to go. That's, okay. That's safe. Yeah. So you could fly into Lyon. And then easily explore the region. Now you are in the you are in the south of the region in Lyon, and you want you really want to get up to the north to go to see the you know because the crews are the place that you really want to see. That said, the Pied d'Oreille, which is translates as the Golden Stones, which is further south, and that's part of the the village, the Beaujolais village region. Beautiful. If you like Tuscany, it's like being in Tuscany because really? you've got all these wonderful, yeah, wonderful golden stone buildings, all made out of, I guess, some kind of um, sandstone. I should know this, shouldn't I? Um, <laughs> but all the buildings are so pretty, you know, and the little sort of windy roads going through villages with, you know, old churches and town halls, and it's really very, very pretty. If you want to learn more about it, if you there's a book called Cloche Merle, which is set in this region, oh. and it was made into a BBC drama in the 70s and 80s. Um, it's good, and that's all set in that area. Oh, interesting. So, if you could ever find the BBC drama, I don't know whether maybe it's on the internet. <laughs> probably on probably on YouTube. It might be. Would they? Have you seen it? By the way, have you seen the drama? Yes, I haven't. No, I've I've seen clips of the drama. It is older than me. Did they record it in Beaujolais? They did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In the village of Cloche Merle. Yeah, so you can get a, you can get a sense of it, but you can buy the book. You can buy an English translation of it. It's quite an interesting book. Basically, it's a, it's the story of um, <laughs> for you, Rhinel being built in a village, um, which the um, village don't want. Okay, <laughs> right. I mean, it's sort of a satire on French bureaucracy, which 
we all live. <laughs> we, all, we, always, we always live to, to look at the French bureaucracy and, and laugh at them. Oh, dear. Okay. All right. Well, there you go, everybody. A suggestion for whilst you're drinking your bottle of Beaujolais Nouveau, you can um, open up this book and just snuggle up on the couch and get really into things. Um, so if you flew into Lyon and yeah, like you said, and, you, and people do want to go up to the cruise, how long? Because to be honest, this is not a very big area. Isn't it like 34 miles, like the whole of Beaujolais? Yeah, 55 kilometres from top to bottom and about 15 kilometres from east to west. So north to south, 55 kilometres, 15 kilometres east to west. So not a very big area. So you're talking about maybe an hour, an hour and a half to get, you know, from one end to the other. Perfect. And then in terms of like, is it quite, you said about winding roads though, but is it quite easy to drive around this area? You see, yeah, it's easy to drive around, but it is, you know, it is small villages, slightly hilly sort of hills tucked into into valleys and on hills so it is windy roads and like i say it reminds me a lot of say tuscany or even piemonte um you know they're very similar sorts of areas i find both you know in the style of the wines that they make actually in a lot of ways but also in the geography and the layout but then they're also very close actually if you look at where they are so it's not surprising. How many days would you recommend as a good amount of time to kind of just get yourself around this area and enjoy it? Just a long, a long weekend is good enough? A long weekend you'd do, you'd be okay. But then if you want to spend time in Lyon, you probably want a bit long because you probably want, a, you know, a couple of days in Lyon just to explore the city and then a few days to actually go and have a, a drive around and visit a few vineyards. One of the great things you have actually, so in a lot of the villages, you have uh, Cavo. So for example, where the crews are, so Cavo Morgon. And so in the centre of Villemorgon, you have this building and then downstairs you have Cavo Morgon. And in there, they have basically all of the wines that are made in Morgon. So you can go into there and you can buy like a glass of any of the wines that are made in the area and you can taste them. So you can buy like a flight of, say, six wines. And you say, right, I want to try these six producers from Morgon. They only have Morgon in Cavo Morgon. You know, they only have, say, Fleury in, in Cavo Fleury. But you can go in and you can try them all. So it's a really great way of sort of getting familiar with that crew village. Oh, fantastic. Without having to dedicate several hours to do one tour or one visit to one yes. winery. Mm. Yeah, and then you might go there and you might say, right, actually, I really love this one. I want to now go and visit the winery. I want to go and see the vineyard. But it gives you that opportunity to sort of get a real sense of understanding of the crew and the style and the way that the wines are made. Mm. Now, is Beaujolais a bit of a still kind of just you said villages and we know there's vines there is there anything any other activities going on or is it really sleepy chilled go for nice walks drink nice wine and eat good food is that the vibe of Beaujolais that is the vibe to me I mean uh, other people listening I may have been and done something really crazy in Beaujolais <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen anything like that um, so yeah so normally it is you go you taste wine you eat amazing food you chat to wonderful people go for long walks on the hills you know beautiful so we'll be back next week continuing with Beaujolais but focusing on the 10 crews so the top 10 villages the villages that produce the best quality and don't forget you're in safe hands with Wickham's Wines especially when in Beaujolais as they won the best specialist retailer South and Regional France with the Decanter Retail Awards this year so don't forget to use my code EATSLEEP10 to get yourself 10% off your next order 
And as Beaujolais Nouveau is quite an easy wine to drink, here is a quote for you. And it is, I'm not having a glass of wine. I'm having six. It's called a tasting and it's classy. <laughs> so keep that in mind when you open up your next bottle of Beaujolais. So that's it for today. Share the podcast, rate the podcast, leave a review. And until next week, wine friends, cheers to you.